All this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. The tide of public opinion seems to have turned against the big tech firms. Much has been said about the possible influence of nefarious actors on democratic processes in the US and the UK, enabled by Facebook in particular. Indeed, we've covered it on this podcast with more than a little scepticism. Meanwhile, political parties around the world are targeting the tech giants with threats of breakup, heavier regulation or new taxes to fund public services. So what role should big tech play in our society? How serious of a threat are these companies to our democracy? Are they having a malign impact on our economies? How is it they have gone so quickly from being media darlings to political punch bags? They take your stuff for free. They they sell it and monetize it for huge margins. That's why the companies trade for such high valuations. Then they write algorithms and control your life. I started Facebook. I run it. And I'm responsible for what happens here. Facebook has unbelievable, I mean, we deal with it every day. They determine who we can communicate with. They have incredible power over the economy, over the political life of this country in a very dangerous sense. Welcome back to Polarized, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and our culture and how to fix them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. Coming up, my RSA colleague Ashim Singh will be speaking to Roger McNamee, an early investor in Facebook, who has now become a very vocal critic, author of the book Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. But before that, it's time for our full disclosure segment. And what I'm going to do, in this is slightly unfair, because I know normally uh. you'd be paid an enormous amount of money for this. But I want you to imagine... Uh, you get a call, and it's a call from kind of Sergey Brin and Mark oh, Sergei, Zuckerberg. Of course, yeah, he calls me all the time. Mark so. Zuckerberg and you know Jack Dorsey or whatever. They all call you and say, "Look, we've realised that we've gone from being, you know, heroes, being profiled for our brilliance and our genius, to being the kind of you know uh, the, the the sector people love to hate." And then we've heard you're really good at kind of understanding what's going on and where the public mood is and what to do about it. So we want you to come in and we want you to advise the global tech sector on what the hell it does. <laughs> uh, look, the only thing they can do, I don't think there's much they can do, because unfortunately they're dealing with one of the kind of most powerful forces in, in human nature, which is denial. The, are we in denial, or the tech yeah, companies? The, I think it, we are, the critics of the tech companies oh, are, are, are in denial about the the threat to dem- dem- democracy. It's not these companies, it's us, it's people who have finally been given a platform on which to publish and express their views en masse, and that's turning out to have loads of unforeseen and unwelcome consequences uh, b- because we are just very flawed and full of biases, basically a bit a bit mad at scale. And we're blaming the technology and the companies behind the technology when the real problem is is us. This is a, a, a you know, I talked about this before. It's a so demand side so problem you're, as you're, much you're, as a I'm sure side they want to hear this in. So your basic position is that the public is basically blaming the mirror for the fact that it doesn't like its own reflection. Yeah, this is, this is my private conversation with them. And then, and then I say, <laughs> but well, what look, are you going guys, to advise? Because I don't think that's going to work publicly. So, so here's the only thing you can do. The, the only thing you can do is... And it's going to fail. But but the only thing you can do is try and get out ahead of the conversation on how to regulate these forms of speech. The conversation at the moment is 
Mark Zuckerberg, why aren't you regulating yourself? In what other industry do we say this? We don't say to the, to the pharmaceuticals industry or indeed to the old media industry, you guys just get on and, and regulate yourself. Or, 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 when, or when they do regulate themselves, you know, we, we, we criticise them for it. And we, want, we want them to be more independent. You know, usually we say, OK, we will regulate this, this industry because we know you can't be trusted to regulate yourselves. Here we're saying... Facebook, you decide what's true and what's false. You you decide, you know, what, what's acceptable and what's what's not acceptable. That's ridiculous. And we wouldn't be happy with it if they did. It's just a way of avoiding the question, which is how do we regulate our own public speech? Okay, so we've got we've got the emergence of a strategy here, which is privately we think it's just because the public are stupid and incapable <laughs> of recognising it. But publicly our position is going to be that we have to recognise we have to we have to do something that shows that we care. Okay, uh, what are the two or three things that we as a sector need to do which are symbolically powerful but substantively real in order to kind of shift this public mood? This is where I, you know, the extent to which I've thought okay, about well, how to advise these guys. Is... Well, let, let's go through a list of things then, yeah. okay? So let's, what, let, let's start with data. Yeah. Shouldn't shouldn't we be in a position where people themselves can very, very easily be in control of their data and make money out of their data if they want to, rather than having to go through incredibly complex processes to look after their data, not really having any opportunity to make money out of it? Uh, that sounds good. I have no idea how you make that work in practice. And, and, and I know that most people just don't think or care that much about their, their own data, or that, at least that's my suspicion. Now, maybe they can be made to, and, and, and perhaps if you have some sort of financial incentive to do so, then, then that would work. But at the moment, I, I think it's difficult to kind of raise people's consciousness, if that's what you want to do, uh, in terms of you know the importance of your own data. Because actually, the importance of your own individual da- data is not very high. These things only matter at scale. So, so we're not, uh, we're not okay. So, so, okay, we're not sure about data. What about we will take responsibility for whatever is put on our platforms, and we will employ enough people sitting in rabbit hutches somewhere in the kind of far east, looking at all this ghastly stuff, and try to remove all of it. But we will, in the end, yeah. recognise that we are publishers, and we therefore must take responsibility. Is that what about that? That's fine. And or you know, you invent an AI that's good enough to, to do this. By the way. If their claims about being very advanced in AI were, were true, they would have sorted this problem out already. You know, so in theory, that's that's a good idea. But the, in principle, the, the problem is you're asking Facebook to decide what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in public speech. Oh. You're asking them to be the arbiters of of truth and lies, and I just think that's uh, that's ridiculous. So okay, so another little wrinkle on this. I think we're making progress here. You know, oh, good. I, I think I think my, we're, earning we're, my money. We're, we're almost certainly worth the ten thousand pounds a minute <laughs> we're being paid by the tech giants. So what about governance? It's onerous and lacks credibility to say, Mark Zuckerberg, you clean up your own app. But what if these companies were to agree to establish open panels which brought together regulators, citizens uh, and their own senior executives to try to agree a way forward and a continuous form of governance to ensure genuine... To rec- so the companies recognise we have more power than any corporation's ever had in history, you know, some of us, and therefore we need a completely different kind of form of governance. How about that? I think that sounds pretty good, actually. I think what I was starting out by saying, which is they need to, to get out ahead of this and, and take the initiative, but they have to do so in collaboration with government and, and with consumer bodies and, and so on. The problem at the moment is that politicians don't seem to be in the mood for actually stepping up to that challenge because they've found a scapegoat and by God, they're going to 
beat that scapegoat. Yeah, until, which is you know, why we called you in in, in the first place. Yeah. But then finally, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren wants some of your money and Jeremy Corbyn wants some of your money. You have got a lot of money, you tech companies. I mean, Apple, I think, has got is the richest corporation in human history. Uh, what about tax? What about saying, look, OK, all of us, we will come together. We will work with the OECD. We do recognise that somehow we do actually have to have our profits taxed in a reasonable way. Too far? No, <laughs> I mean, pay the pay the bloody taxes. I mean, that's not even. But I'm not enough of a tax expert to know exactly which taxes. I mean, that always, you know, in principle, it's fine for us to say they should pay their taxes. We can all agree with that. Um, but it always comes down to okay, which which taxes and when and yeah. I mean, obviously they should. The fact that these corporations ought to have their profits taxed, they probably ought to have a radical, a much more radical. Well, everyone should a much more radically open governance model and they ought to explore whether in time it's possible to do something more about enabling people more easily to kind of manage their data so it's a pretty radical agenda and i think in summary before we listen to roger McNamee, who was really on the inside and in his journey is interesting because you know he's one of the early investors he's an yeah. absolute enthusiast he's one of those kind of ghastly silicon valley kind of entrepreneurial you know everything's fantastic and the world's wonderful and then he really goes through a big shift so here's a, here's a fascinating story but i think what you're saying in kind of drives home the fact that, you know, this deteriorating public and political attitude to tech firms is simply not going to change until the tech firms realise that they have got to go on a very, very big journey. And the evidence at the moment is that they're still in the territory. How can it look as though we're willing to go on that journey without actually going on it? Yep. But I, I, and I just want to insist on the fact that uh, politicians and governments have to go on a journey as well because they have to recognise this is a completely new world of, of communication and it needs to be thought about and regulated differently and just scapegoating is not going to solve that problem. Well, thank you, Mr. Leslie. Your Bitcoin is in the post. <laughs> so my RSA colleague, uh, Ashim Singh, has been speaking to Roger McNamee, one of the early investors in Facebook, as I said, and now one of its most outspoken critics. So, Roger, there was a real, it seems to me, idealism in the early platform pioneers. In your book, you refer to the work of the early pioneers as startups, this wonderful phrase, without modesty or a sense of irony in the way they approached their tasks. Google wanted to organise the world's info. Facebook wanted to make the world more open and connected. I remember in... 2011, seeing a graphic by a Facebook intern which showed a map of the world, and it was overlaid by a sort of miasma of blue, you know, connecting countries and communities, all lines and stars. And that was seen to be a great thing because it was this sort of noble goal to work towards. So, given all of that energy, all of that optimism, that idealism of the tech pioneers to bring the world together, and you, I suppose, were one of these individuals yourself to some extent once. Where did it all go wrong? Well, to be clear, I think that the context for this is that Silicon Valley, from 1956 to roughly 2000, the industry was driven by an idealism that was the product of the values of the U.S. space program and the hippie values introduced by Atari and Apple. The California ideology. And the notion was that the goal of all technology companies should be to empower the people who use their products. And it was a time when there were extreme limits on processing power, memory storage, and bandwidth. The result of which was that every technologist, every engineer, 
had to work really closely with customers to identify the single most valuable thing the customer wanted that the engineer could solve and to do just that because you were constrained. And the industry had a 44 or 45 year run on that philosophy. Then shortly after the millennium, that basic framework changed. The bursting of the internet bubble caused a reappraisal of everything that was going on. Venture capitalists retreated. There was a temporary absence of that, which coincided precisely with the moment when Moore's Law, which guides the growth in the processing power per dollar spent, and Metcalfe's Law, which guides the a value of networks, those two hit critical inflection points where suddenly the constraints on processing power, memory, storage, and bandwidth began to evaporate. Mm-hmm. By 2004, it was possible to do full bitrate video on a wired network. By roughly 2010, you could do it on a smartphone. And at that point, between t- 2004 and 2010, it was possible to make a global consumer product where you could impose your will on the people who use the technology, where it was no longer necessary to empower them. And it happens that in the void after the internet bubble burst, a group of investors emerged who are now known as the PayPal Mafia. They were the founders of PayPal. So we're talking about Peter Thiel. We're talking about Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, a group of other people who as a chance would have it, all shared a philosophy of business and a philosophy of life that was a relatively extreme form of libertarianism, where their notion was move fast and break things, which became the slogan of Facebook. Their notion was disruption was an end unto itself and that it was okay to disrupt anything because none of us is responsible for anybody but ourselves. These people were brilliant. They noted that in addition to those constraints going off, you also had a transition in the internet from being a web of pages to a web of people. And lastly, there was a corresponding change in the economics of Silicon Valley, where once you had unlimited processing power, storage bandwidth, and and memory, it made sense for companies to go into the business of providing the infrastructure for network applications. So this is the business model that created Amazon Web Services. So you, this is, if, if you will, infrastructure as a service. Prior to 2000, if you wanted to make a web application, you'd have to spend at least $100 million and hire anywhere from 25 to 50 experienced engineers just to create the infrastructure before you could even start making your product. So the cost of doing a startup was north of $100 million. In the new regime, where there were no limits, where there were companies you could go with a credit card and rent your infrastructure by the hour, the economics changed completely. Suddenly, instead of something north of $100 million to a startup, it might be $10 million to get to market, which meant that the risk to the investor came way down. And it turned out that in that environment, 
you didn't need venture capitalists anymore because the amount of money required could be handled by angel investors like the PayPal mafia. So that stew created LinkedIn, Facebook, and everything that followed. And Google, if you will, provided the guiding light. They were the ones who had the core insight that you could convert human experience into data, use machine learning to create a data voodoo doll of every human being, and use that to manipulate attention, to make behavioral predictions that you could sell to marketers, and then to actually manipulate behavior. And that is what Professor Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard calls surveillance capitalism. And Professor Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is the most important work in economics, in my humble opinion, since Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. It describes the most important economic model of its time for the very first time. It names all the component pieces. It describes how they work, what they mean, and what we need to think about. And that has guided me in my activism because what I realize is that many of the things that we think of as independent issues in society, climate change, gun violence, anti-vax, many others, are all issues that either exist or are made intractable by surveillance capitalism. That for all intents and purposes, these, this business model has given excessive leverage to the angriest people in society and made them a political force that is unlike anything we've ever seen in the past. And I think that brings us nicely onto this idea that you refer to in your book and that, that we refer to in this podcast over and over again of polarization, this, um, this leverage, this sucker that's been given via this perfect storm of uh, lower transaction costs and individuals with a particular libertarian bent. But the real world effects of their collective activity has been this polarization within society. And there's a great quote in your book, which summarizes the modern maelstrom well, that social media companies effectively abridge the rights of the peaceful in order to benefit the angry. That journey from you know, this group of investors that were working in a certain way and, and had certain ideals to where we are now with all of this disengagement, all of this polarization, this very angry uh, modern milieu, you know, has the movement, has that movement been deliberate? Has it been negligent? Or was it an unavoidable consequence of what happened? The issues that you're describing are the result of a business model derived from surveillance capitalism. These companies compete in an advertising marketplace, in an attention marketplace with newspapers, magazines, television, but also Netflix and video games and music and other things. They need to command our attention. So they use techniques of psychology first to create habits to get us coming back, and then secondly, to get us to spend a lot of time. And the way they get us to spend a lot of time is that they, quote, give us what we want, unquote. And the thing to understand is that in contrast to every form of media that came before them, these companies have the ability to address individuals as individuals, to customize their content at the individual level. And as I say relative to Facebook, it is 2.4 billion Truman shows, each person with their own reality and often their own facts. And that 
contributes dramatically to polarization because if you're in a filter bubble, if you're in an environment that blocks out any idea that is not consistent with your preconceived opinions, then you will wind up with people who view any form of disagreement as a threat that it's really us versus them. And the thing to understand is the people at Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon are not bad people, but they value different things. And for the most part, their education has not included the kind of deep understanding of the enlightenment values on which democratically organized countries are based. So Google really views itself in the business of eliminating inefficiency. And, you know, they do that by converting human experience into data, running it through, through machine learning, creating these data voodoo dolls, making behavioral predictions, and using the same data voodoo doll to massage your search results so that your search results limit your choices to the ones that bring their predictions to bear. That is not something they do because they're evil. That's something they do because they exist in a business climate in America where there are very few rules and almost no enforcement of the rules that exist. And, you know, in a world where the banking industry was allowed to destroy the global economy with essentially no meaningful negative consequences, it's hard to, you can't be surprised. I mean, smart people are going to see opportunity and go for it. When I look at Facebook, what I see is a company that saw connecting the whole world on one network as such an important ideal that it justified any steps necessary to get there. So in their mind, they don't see the connection between their choices and their actions and the harm that those choices and actions are producing. They look at that and go, no, no, you just don't understand how important our mission is. And my response is, and you don't understand that a company at your scale has responsibilities to the communities that it addresses. Do you think there is a countervailing view, though? You know, there's some research, for example, that suggests that people online actually see more material from other perspectives than readers of politically leaning newspapers or TV channels. And then there's also platforms that have been used by groups like the Me Too movement to drive unparalleled change, to weed out weasels like Weinstein, for example. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not all evil, is no, it? No, no. And, and I don't, for a moment, I don't believe the, that the technology is bad or harmful in any way. I think the issue here is the culture, the business model, of these companies, and that the technology has enormous potential for good. The Arab Spring showed you that, wow, you can organize peaceful, democratic stuff in a totalitarian regime. That's really attractive, except the exact same technology was used to crush the Arab Spring and to reinforce the strength of the authoritarian regimes in those countries. The reality of these businesses is that they provide tools that are fantastic for organizing events, but they're designed to eliminate friction. The goal of these things is to keep our attention, keep us moving. That's why you have things like autoplay for video and why you have the bottomless bowls of endless news feeds, right? That you just 
all the normal stopping cues are eliminated to keep you engaged. And the effect of that is to prevent deliberation, to prevent critical thinking. I believe there is data to support every viewpoint you would like around here. But what you don't see is at the sum of all the events, a positive outcome. What you see is disrupted democracy in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Brazil. You see disrupted elections in India and many parts of Europe. You see what the United Nations calls a classic ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. You see 25,000 dead to death squads enabled by social media use by the regime in the Philippines. You see uh, hate speech causing huge issues in Sri Lanka. You see gun violence and terrorism in New Zealand, the United States, and elsewhere, all enabled by this. And the positives that you see are at the anecdote level, whereas the negatives have body counts associated with them and changes in freedom for whole populations. So the positives occur at the individual level, the negatives occur at the population level, and at the moment, I think the negatives far outweigh the positives. But again, it's not the technology. It's the business model and the culture that drive you to those outcomes. And that's what's created the polarizing outcomes. Yes. That- I mean, essentially, I'm a big believer in free speech. I do not believe in censorship. But I want to point out that the flaw in these companies is not something you could solve with censorship. The flaw in these companies is that in order to maintain our attention, to get maximum engagement, they promote, their algorithms promote the content that engages us best. And the lowest common denominator, the thing that works best across about two-thirds of the population, is stuff that triggers flight or fight, which means to say fear or outrage. The data types that do that are hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And in different geographies, people will disagree on what qualifies as hate speech or disinformation or a conspiracy theory. But I would observe that the conscious promotion of those classes of content has been extremely harmful in democratic societies. And I find it hard to believe that it's been that different in authoritarian ones. That is a choice. The promotion of that kind of content, of a business model driven by maximizing engagement, driven by the relentless surveillance and gathering of data from every possible source to create these data voodoo dolls that can then be used to make predictions and then be used to manipulate behavior, Those are conscious choices of people who could do this differently. My hope throughout is that the founders of Google and Facebook and the leaders of Microsoft and Amazon would choose to be the hero in their own movie by recognizing that they've succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. And in the process, they've had some unintended consequences that have done great harm. And that they are in the best position of anyone to mitigate that harm. And the best way to do that is to end the business of surveillance capitalism, which means, you know, to me, the simple answer is I would like to ban all third party use of data, private personal data. So this would be financial, health, location, 
internet browsing history, email, documents, all the sources of data that surveillance capitalists live on, which they buy, trade, and exploit. I believe that that personal data is a human right. It's not an asset to be traded. It's not about owning your own data. I think owning your own data is a terrible idea. That's like saying you own your own body parts so you can sell your kidneys. I mean, no. There's a reason why society prohibits that. And I don't see why this is different. And people will disagree. And that's the debate we need to have. Because what's wrong right now is we're only hearing the platform side of this conversation. The other side has been very hard to get that into the mainstream discussion. Roger McNamee's book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, is out now. We'll put a link to his full RSA talk on big tech and the future of democracy in the description of this episode. It's a great interview, but I'm not entirely sure about that last point. I don't think the conversation is now taking place entirely on the basis that the platforms want. I want to pick up two points here. The first is the idea that it's not the technology, it's the way the technology is used. I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, Twitter, by its very nature, suits short, sharp, declamatory views. That's its nature. Yeah. Um, You know, Instagram, by its very nature, encourages a kind of slightly self-obsessed, showy kind of superficialism. So I'm kind of with Evgeny Moritzov, I think, in this, Ian. What he argues is you should avoid determinism. It's not the case that technology leads to any particular outcomes, but you shouldn't ignore the fact that different technologies work in different ways and kind of privilege particular things. So, you know, technology is not neutral in that regard. What, what, so where, what, what do you think of that? I agree with that. I'm not sure what you do about it, but absolutely different technologies have affect the way you debate and think and, you know, the kind of way you express yourselves. You know, it's shaped by that little electronic box in on Twitter or, or the space you get to, to post a photo in, in, in Instagram. But, you know, that's always been true. And, and and by the sheer fact that it used to be that mad people would stand on street corners and they'd only be heard by people walking past them. And now mad people can stand on the social media street corner. And if their stuff is sufficiently entertaining, it can be read by hundreds of thousands of people. Yes, yeah. I mean, I would just point out that... that if I had to pick one technology medium in in the United States that has ruined or coarsened uh, the political discourse, it would be TV, it'd be Fox TV. Well, although interesting, and radio, radio, right? So, TV I mean, and radio. Because well, yeah, I think this is right. You see, we've talked in the past about the fact that the number of people who feel very angry with everything is much higher than we might have thought. It's between thirty and forty percent of the population. It seems to me that that group of people who've been angry for quite some time and whose anger is greater than their kind of constructive contributions. I'm not saying they're all bad people, but they are much stronger on what's wrong than what what you would do about it. Those people were discounted in the past, and they were discounted because they often didn't vote. And because they didn't really have a programme and because they didn't really organise terribly well because they're too busy being angry. But, of course, what's happened now is that those people have got a voice. And I think you're right. Conventional media, it's actually shock jocks. It's talk radio that is the first place which says to those people, just being really bloody angry is fine. Come on my programme and be bloody angry. And no one's going to say to you, but yeah, what, what positive things are you suggesting? Or who do you support? They'll just say, great, you know? Yeah. And, and to a certain extent, you know, 
those people were shut out of the conversation before because the the norms of polite discourse were were exclusionary. You know, it wasn't the the done thing to go on and 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 sort of insult people. So now it, there's a good argument to be made that those norms on what what was kind of polite speech and what wasn't were, were too tightly drawn before. Now that the internet has kind of blown them away. Now they have a president who tweets like a you know the mad person on the corner. We're in trouble, but perhaps we, we were too far the other way before. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because at the same time as society has got now through these platforms a capacity for all sorts of wild, weird, mad, false opinions to be thrown around. Actually, in our day to day lives in organisations, we have to be ever more careful about the language that we use and the ways in which we behave. So this leads to a high level of anxiety for people because they're faced with these. Two very different realities. Can we move on to a second thing that he talked about, that Roger talked about, which is politics and elections. Where do you fit on the kind of Russian paranoia scale? You are kind of at at the naught end, which is actually, it's all a bit exaggerated and ridiculous, or the 10 end, which is the Russians are basically in control of everything. I'm about um, kind of three or four. I think what they're doing is is appalling. I, I think we should make every effort to, to fight back against it. And I think it's bad for, for, for the discourse in lots of ways. Do I, but I actually don't think it's a huge influence on, on, on our politics. No serious evidence that it made a difference in, in 2016. If you speak to the political scientists who've, who've studied that election most deeply, there's pretty much consensus on that. They disagree on lo- lots of other things with this consensus on that. So not yet, <laughs> but uh, you know, it so may become a big but, one. Ugly, but not necessarily salient. Yeah. I mean, I think my view is that the, the, the role of social media in elections, that the two ways in which it has made things worse, is firstly anonymity, which is that lots of stuff can circulate and we don't really know where it's come from. And, you know, if I go back 15, 20 years, you need, you know, okay, a lot of newspapers were very, very opinionated, but you kind of knew where, you knew where stuff came from and now you don't know where anything comes from. And I think that's problematic because it enables people to, to put all sorts of crap out there and not be accountable for it but also we have to again increasing our levels of anxiety have to read this stuff and try to work out whether or not there's any basis to it yeah the second thing is targeting and that's another big shift in the kind of campaigns that i was involved in campaigns i was involved in if you were found saying one thing to one group of people and one thing to another group of people this would be a bad story for you you would be exposed and it sometimes happened and i remember Blair, one of the things that Blair said very early on, you know, advised by Philip Gould and Alistair Campbell, was, you know, we mustn't say one thing to the comrades and then say another thing to the swing voters because we'll get caught out. You know, we, we'll, we'll use that, we'll, we'll, we'll package the message differently, but the message has got to be the same in Cosmopolitan as, as in The Guardian, you know, the same in a, in a meeting in Hartlepool as a meeting in, in Tunbridge Wells. But that's now gone now because your, the capacity of tar parties to target stuff, stuff which, again, it's difficult to know where it's come from, is exactly their voters. And to give very different messages to very different people, that seems to me to be another kind of rather corrosive effect. I agree, I agree with that. I think that is corrosive. Um, it goes against this, this principle that sociologists sometimes call common knowledge, which is a discourse which where, where or, or, you know, any event or, or something somebody says where everybody can see that everybody else can see it, mm. if you see what I mean. It's not just that you can see it, but you know that others can see yeah. it at the same time as you. And that has a norming effect. And that has a huge norming effect. It's a co- coordination, you know, you know, helps us to coordinate ourselves. It helps us to see what's going on, across, you know, outside of our own little bubble. Um, and when when you're getting information which you you think I suspect might might be just for you, you can't trust that information in the same way. So, yeah, I do think I do think that's a problem. That's it. 
for this episode of Polarised. Uh, if, if you enjoyed this episode, and I rather have, Ian, so thank you oh, very much. As always. Uh, please tell someone about it. We'd really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Polarised was presented by Matthew Taylor and Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA. Thank you.